Hi, you're listening to Impact, Dialogos, a podcast on Brazilian contemporary politics, populism and conspiracy theory. I am Katerina Hadzikidi and I'm your host. In this episode, I speak with David Simsler. David is a social anthropologist at EHSS, the School for Advanced Studies in the Social Sciences in Paris, France. He has conducted long-term ethnographic fieldwork in rural Pernambuco, a state in the northeast of Brazil, where he researched religion and politics among MSD activists. The MSD is the Brazilian Landless Rural Workers Movement, one of the biggest social movements in Brazil, which defends access to land and civil rights for the rural poor and fights for agrarian reform. In this episode of Impact Dialogos, David will speak about his fieldwork in the run-up to the 2018 presidential elections and will discuss some of his findings in relation to this podcast's core interests – politics, populism, conspiracy theory and anthropology. I asked David about the rise of evangelical Christianity in Brazil and what this rise may involve for a country historically representing one of the most important Catholic communities in the world. Well, I would answer that for most social scientists and journalists, this uh, dramatic rise has been a source of concern. The conservative agenda of powerful evangelical leaders like Silas Malafaia in Brazil is more and more associated with a threat to secular democracy and human rights. Silas Malafaia is pastor and leader of Pentecostal Church, Assembleia de Deus Vitória em Cristo. And also he is what is generally described as a televangelist, or one could say, a multimedia evangelist. Malafaia is one of the best known and richest evangelical leaders in Brazil, who became a fervent ally of President Jair Bolsonaro. David explained to me that evangelicals were not always perceived as a threat. In the 1990s, when we noticed an exponential increase in new converts, much of the focus was on issues of cultural change and national identity. David says that what was at stake at that moment was Brazilian identity itself, an anxiety reflected in the question, what happened to the most Catholic country in the world? And is Latin America turning Protestant? Here's David telling us more about this national identity and why Protestant and evangelical conversion was often seen as a break from it. This cultural identity relies in particular on popular devotion to Catholic saints like Nossa Senhora Aparecida, the patroness of Brazil, but also on a syncretism with Afro-indigenous practices And all of these are firmly rejected by evangelical doxa. So the growth of evangelicalism is seen as a cultural break. And from the outside, evangelical faith uh, with its rigid norms and prohibitions is widely seen as intolerant, aggressive, uh, kind of aggressive proselytism in contrast with Brazilian pragmatic tradition of inclusion and diversity. But at the same time, this cultural change has also challenged the colonial roots, Catholic colonial roots of Brazil, 
And some scholars in the 90s saw uh, something like a social change uh, in this uh, with issues of modernization and democratization uh, through a religion that is a chosen religion and not an inherited Catholic culture. Well, we shall acknowledge that there has been a cruel disappointment on these hopes of democratization. Uh, while Catholicism had been a solid ground for building resistance to dictatorship through liberation theology, the return to democracy in Brazil allowed numerous evangelical churches to reach political voice in the public space with an increasing number of right-wing religious lawmakers and governors. And now, at every election, the evangelical vote between brackets is perceived as a potential threat to democracy. And that's what happened again with Bolsonaro. Evangelicals are often lumped together and, not unfrequently, identified as a rather conservative or even reactionary part of the population. On the other hand, many practitioners and researchers alike take pain to emphasize the diversity within the evangelical universe, and David's work does an excellent job in this respect by showing lesser-known aspects of evangelical political engagement. To make sure everyone is familiar with the topics under discussion, I asked David to tell me a little bit about who Brazilian evangelicals are and whether it makes any sense to attach any particular political identity or behavior to being evangelical? Well, the Brazilian uh, evangelical world is indeed very diverse depending on social divisions and established classifications. Roughly speaking, uh, they emphasize the experience of conversion or, as they say, accepting Jesus as their personal savior, which means cutting ties with traditional saints, the Virgin Mary or Afro-indigenous entities, all of these reframed as pagan idolatry. For them, conversion means choosing a living God instead of worshipping dead things. Uh, for many of them, this living God is directly experienced through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like healing and speaking in tongues, uh, as the event of the Pentecost tell this in the Bible. And that's why the, the frontier between Pentecostalism and Evangelicalism is not clear in Brazil. And consequently, the Bible is the ultimate source of authority and the only sacred material object they admit. Uh, reading, knowing and citing the Bible, spreading the word of God by missionizing others is a basic duty of all converts. David also said that evangelicals socialize through congregations, which are elective groups of voluntary members, as opposed to Catholic parishes attached to determinate places. New congregations appear constantly in Brazil, and they range from small transitory groups of prayer to huge megachurches like the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God, which has expanded on different continents. Regarding political identification, scholars have widely pointed their conservative orientation 
even if some anthropologists like Regina Novais or John Burdick refuted this argument. There are at least three reasons. First, political behavior in Brazil is not so much governed by ideological options like right-wing versus left-wing, but rather by effective and moral evaluations of the person. For example, my interlocutors could highly appreciate Lula uh, while rejecting the Workers' Party, the PT. Another reason is that most of early studies on evangelicalism in Brazil were done by Catholic activists, sociologists, sympathizing with Marxism and liberation theology. A third reason, most important, is that the Brazilian evangelical world is now as diverse as social classes, middle-class liberal churches, uh, including feminist agenda or homosexuals, have nothing to do with the poor peripheral neighborhood churches, which are the majority. So, in my view, political identification of evangelical is not predetermined, but must be related to a local significant social structure. For them, church is not a place for doing politics. Yes, contrary to the pedagogy of Catholic-based communities. But this means political indeterminacy rather than conservative attitudes. Now that we have a better idea of who Brazilian evangelicals are and how we may or may not position them in the political spectrum, I asked David to tell me what the MST is and why does the association MST and evangelicals cause surprise to many. The MST is the Brazilian Landless Rural Workers Movement, a well-known organization fighting for agrarian reform, defending access to land and civil rights for the rural poor in Brazil, which is one of the most unequal countries in the world regarding land distribution. And this organization has been studied by many researchers worldwide from various disciplines, uh, all concerned with social inequality, development and building democracy in Brazil. It was born in the 80s in the south of Brazil during the end of dictatorship and it became well famous one decade after with the alter globalization movement uh, fighting neoliberalism uh, and it was a founding member of the Via Campesina, a global network of peasant movements. So it has a strong socialist ideology and its practice mostly come from liberation theology and the Catholic-based communities uh, when they were resisting dictatorship. And uh, although its original banner is socialist agrarian reform, uh, it turned over the past decades to other claims such as food sovereignty, uh, sustainable agroecology or LGBT and feminist agenda. So it, its action in Brazil did indeed a lot to challenge social inequality. David explained that the MST has a very organized hierarchical structure and that its membership relies on land occupation, which is the movement's main strategy for pressuring the government to expropriate land. His interlocutors in the field were participating in land occupations in the sugarcane plantations of Pernambuco, one of the oldest colonial regions in Brazil. 
So they build up a temporary encampment, they cultivate the land, planting food crops until the state creates a land reform settlement. And uh, regarding politics, the movement defines itself uh, since its beginning as independent from the Catholic Church, political parties or NGO, but in practice, the leaders uh, support the Workers' Party. So the MST has been a main protagonist during the recent political crisis by carrying protests and collective actions in public spaces against the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff, against the condemnation of Lula and of course against Bolsonaro. So what causes surprise is that although the MST is a secular movement, its ideology and political culture comes from Catholic liberationism, and that means that the church has to opt for the poor and to serve social transformation and political activism. And this, of course, clashes with the image of conservative evangelicals depicted as the main support of Bolsonaro. Land invasions, says David, are often seen by the general public as violent because they transgress individual property rights. Evangelical leaders and pastors usually discourage or even prohibit such radical actions which challenge social order. On the other side, MST leaders are themselves very critical of evangelical churches, arguing that pastors do not support their struggle for land and seeing evangelical churches as invading land reform settlements. But, as David explains, this distinction is far from clear. Generally speaking, in the sugarcane region, as in other parts of Brazil, the Catholic Church has always been the only religious entity that defended the rural poor. But, as the MST leader in Pernambuco told me, uh, today the evangelical churches are ruling. In his work, David emphasizes that ethnography can help us take popular politics seriously. I asked him to explain how does the lived world he describes in his ethnographic research differ from dominant perceptions of grassroots politics. Well, I thank you for mentioning this expression, lived world, used by the Argentinian anthropologist Julieta Quiroz. Well, she argues that popular politics is often approached using dichotomist frameworks. On the one hand, popular politics has always been critically framed as deviant, irrational, emotional, utilitarian. In short, people don't vote for the right reasons, oriented by common good, but for other motives like economic, religious, affective and so on. These heteronomous behaviors are usually described through concepts like clientelism, uh, patronage, paternalism, especially in unequal social contexts. For example, those concepts emerge from studies of peasant societies in anthropology. In Brazil, it is called coronelismo, the word coronel, uh, meaning the powerful led owner who used to govern rural localities. On the other hand, the opposite attitude close to activism is to emphasize autonomy and resistance in poor people politics. This time, it's the institutions and uh, professional politicians that are seen as deviant, betraying true political goals and being oppressive, while the oppressed are seen as always resisting and fighting for rational politics. 
And I think Brazilian popular politics carry the weight of such a dichotomy, as we see in the recent Brazilian crisis that resulted in Bolsonaro. On the one hand, all politicians were accused of being deviant and corrupted. But on the other, popular vote for Bolsonaro was criticized as a simple evangelical vote. So ethnography is helpful to understand who are these people involved in popular politics and what they do and what they want. In my case, the landless movement has been studied as a new peasant politics framed as resistance from the grassroots, like other organizations shaped by liberationist Catholicism. It is called uh, Movimento Popular, popular movement, meaning it comes from below, from the, the Portuguese word is abasi. So the MST is widely seen abroad as the autonomous expression of civil society representing the will of the downtrodden. But it is neither an independent nor a homogeneous entity because its leaders are connected to state agency or the Workers' Party and because its grassroots is connected to evangelical churches, which is, between brackets, the wrong side of popular politics. And this is what ethnography basically allows us to see, uh, showing that this dichotomy is not relevant when we get to study real people. David places emphasis on relations of effect, exploring the role of mandu, understood in English as to command, to rule or to order, in the MSD camps. I ask him why he finds this notion more analytically useful than traditional frames of analysis such as patronage in unpacking unequal power relations. Mandar is what we call in anthropology an emic category belonging to the world studied by the anthropologists, while patronage is an explanatory word belonging to the analytical language of the anthropologist. David explains that the verb mandach refers to power relations in general. Roughly speaking, it denotes that friendship between unequal persons is impossible and that power relations are always synonymous to mere domination or asymmetric exchange. But ethnographic study offers nuance to this dichotomy. We see that power relations are much richer and ambiguous, that mandar can be used as a positive or a negative term. For example, uh, my interlocutors who have experienced personal dependency on sugarcane landowners, mandar is associated with effects of dignity and honor regarding their own house of self-esteem as a master of one's house and family. And as they are also evangelicals, they value power relations with God. Even if the church is a hierarchic universe, the one who ultimately manda is God. But because mandar means also in this context to send or give something, it means protection. But when MST leaders are going against uh, this claim to autonomy, and when they prevent someone to use his house and land as he will, uh, mandar is used as a critic this time. The term popular bolsonarism, or bolsonarismo popular, is often linked to a so-called conservative revolution that took place in 2018 with the election of Jair Bolsonaro. 
David objects to the uncritical use of this term, placing instead moral reciprocity at the center of his analysis. Here he explains why he finds moral reciprocity to be a useful lens from which to explore the complex relations between Pentecostalism and grassroots political activism. When my interlocutors didn't make critical uh, statements on MST leaders accusing them of mandar, they would usually say that they were helping them using the word ajudar, a, a term that refers to an ethical relation of reciprocity implying that the one who is helped is helping too. For example, uh, fighting lutar could be also said as helping the movement. This is very common also during the time of election. Uh, they call tempo da politica, the time of politics. Uh, we see local candidates who come to their doors asking for votes and they promise to help them in exchange. And this fact is seen as the reverse of usual power relations uh, with superior asking for help this time. So when we use the language of patronage and imagine that evangelical churches are responsible for so-called popular Bolsonarism, we are ignoring this ethical, effective dimension of engagement at the grassroots. It's true that evangelical churches also are helping, especially those who have small leadership positions uh, in these churches. But even if those church leaders asked my interlocutors to vote for Bolsonaro, they would put forward their ethical engagement with MST and the Workers' Party. Generally speaking, in this world, in this rural world, where everyone has a reputation because everyone knows everyone, relations of reciprocity are fundamental for achieving moral dignity, uh, what they call consideration, and this implies relations with various types of beings, like kings, friends, neighbors, leaders, but also God himself. Thus, the church can be seen as a site of ethical formation in this sense, that has strong effects in terms of political engagement. And uh, more broadly, I think our task as anthropologists is to go beyond those dualistic frameworks. For example, I think of the anthropologist Nancy Shepard when she speaks of the double ethics of the sugarcane region, double ethics of reciprocity and dependency. But in the sugarcane region, both are intertwined and power relations have been debated and questioned for a long time. For example, since the first peasant movements in the 50s. I asked David about how do preconstructed notions of the other play out in rural Pernambuco? In other words, how does the national feed into the local in the perceptions non-evangelicals have of evangelicals? First of all, I have to make something clear that on the MST settlements where my interlocutors are living, the majority is evangelical and more broadly we could speak of an evangelical culture in this region in the sense that almost everyone had already tried conversion. Men, particularly, had very often lapsed and uh, many had been raised in evangelical churches. So only a few would identify as Catholics, especially those in higher social strata. And sometimes they would indeed see the evangelical other 
uh, as a kind of extremism and hypocrisy. Regarding the national and the local, this was quite obvious with the main MST leaders. For example, they regularly held meetings on the problem of evangelical churches in land reform settlements, uh, accusing them of interfering in the fight for land and collective action, which is partly true. They used uh, Marxist vocabulary, saying that religion is alienation or that evangelicals are individualistic. David said that most MST leaders, acting at the level of the state of Pernambuco, were raised Catholic. But even those raised evangelical would not be any less virulent, themselves saying that evangelical doctrine was based on fear, sin and punishment, while God should be about love and liberation. Many of those leaders commonly saw pastors benefiting from land reform settlements, using the grassroots for political purposes. This negative perception only grew with the national crisis, uh, with the impeachment of Dilma Rousseff, when the evangelical parliamentary bloc was held responsible to the local to the local elections, when candidates not following the Workers' Party were called golpistas, supporters of the coup. And of course, when Bolsonaro became candidate to presidency, supported by rich evangelical leaders. And in the settlements, the MST executive team became increasingly suspicious against members of some churches who sometimes got expelled from uh, the settlements. So uh, relations of trust degraded a lot. And the problem is that my grassroots interlocutors greatly contributed to all of this mobilization during this time of crisis. But what is interesting in the end is that those who felt pressured to vote for Bolsonaro by their churches mostly disagreed. And the same happened with the MST obliging members to vote for the Workers' Party candidate. David challenges rigid dichotomies such as the one between the political and the religious. I asked him why he does not consider them useful. I think this dichotomy is quite ethnocentric and prevents us from understanding the lived world of Brazilian poor in general and evangelical ones in particular. It's a legacy of our secular culture and MST leaders appropriate this secular frame when they criticize pastors who are using religion for political purposes. Uh, suggesting that religion should be a private matter. But a first point is that there is no sense in separating religion from other sides of daily social life. When my Pentecostal interlocutors take part in collective actions like blockades or the occupation of public spaces, they carry their Bibles, they do informal worships and prayers, they get possessed by the Holy Spirit, sometimes they perform healing work on persons, and uh, this, this is uh, stimulated by the uh, specific conception of immediate saintliness, that anyone can be a vehicle of the Holy Spirit in any place of the world. This conception, says David, carries the potential for conflict and dispute between different denominations with regards to power relations within the MST and electoral strategies. Nonetheless, this relational work between believers is a fundamental part of the land occupations he studied. And it's not only a matter of 
emotional sociability because religion helps building notions of civil rights too. And this was a basic assumption of liberationist Catholicism in the early struggles for land. For example, it is a very common popular notion that land is a gift of God to his children. And this justifies the notion of equality, for example. So the problem with this dichotomy, in my view, is that it leads to a normative view of popular religion, reduced to superstition and irrationality. We could say it leads to a religious populism opposing God's will and human agency. And this kind of populism opposing a good religion of the resisting poor to a bad religion of the fanatic poor is obviously a legacy of Marxism and liberation theology still very present in the MST. I asked David whether conspiracy theories were at all present or relevant in the MST camps he studied, and if they were, what kinds of conspiracy theories were they, and how did they circulate? Indeed, there were theories of conspiracy, uh, though I'm not sure what it means exactly. Um, because in a small rural society, gossip and rumors are common ground for socializing and ethics of reciprocity we talked about uh, produce a general distrust against uh, power and money. So the impact of the lavajato and the national narrative of corruption among politicians was indeed circulating widely among my interlocutors when the protest supporting Dilma started. But it was also grounded in the local struggles for power and accusations, for example, of trading lands against local leaders of the MST. Accusations were quite common. So there was a, a disappointment towards the PT, distrust of the government of Dilma Rousseff, which indeed left aside agrarian reform. And uh, I remember how amazed I was when someone holding a banner on my side on a factory blockade told me it would be better if the military regime came back. And this was by no means exceptional to hear that. And uh, from another point of view, the alternative narrative of the Gaupi, the coup, as a traumatic repetition of the past, was also circulating among activists and grassroots landless too. But I think that in the end, global perception of politics as a realm of dirt and sin prevailed among my interlocutors. And I think that's why some of them voted for uh, Bolsonaro. They saw him as an outsider, victim of a conspiracy of corrupt politicians trying to denigrate him. And some of them thought that him surviving an attempted murder was a sign of divine protection. David also spoke of the disinformation campaigns on social media and direct messaging apps such as WhatsApp. He said that in the run-up to the 2018 elections, there was a real war of fake news taking place, especially smearing the Workers' Party candidate. Evangelicals were among the social groups that were most acutely targeted, especially in relation to issues of sexual education and gender identity. In the case of evangelicals, I think it's important to stress that they have a rather persecutory view of the world, full of evil and uh, devil against them. And they, they think that as true Christian witnessing to God, they are 
doomed to persecution. For example, there was a rumor that the head leader of MST in Pernambuco didn't like evangelicals. And well, this happens to be true. <laughs> uh, evangelical social networks, there were images of churches forced to shut down by Marxists in Angola. There is still uh, another important point on conspiracy theories. It's the role of circulating prophecies among evangelicals which is quite similar to social media, in fact. And prophecies are always ambivalent. So the rise of Bolsonaro was also seen as a prophetic sign of the end of times and the return of Jesus. And so this sign was meant to bring misfortunes and plagues to the poor, like violence and exploitation. And some of them would associate him with the biblical figure of the Antichrist or the beast, uh, which is also a deeply uh, rooted feature of messianism, of apocalyptic messianism in the rural Northeast. Uh, uh, for example, a widely shared video on evangelical networks explained that slavery would return with the forced implementation of a chip on the forehead of every person. And this was written in the book of the Apocalypse. Uh, as the anthropologist Otavio Velho said about this biblical belief in the return of captivity, there is always an ontological doubt. Uh, is that God or the devil who is using Bolsonaro? From this viewpoint, conspiracy theories are quite similar to the old theological Christian theodicy. My final question to David was whether there is a lesson MST evangelicals can teach us about the faces of grassroots and populist politics and about the ways religion and politics may intersect at the national level. Well, I think the main problem with populist politics is that religion is taken for an instrument to build fictitious or imagined communities and uh, Christian language has indeed strongly shaped public space in Brazil. So today, powerful evangelical leaders use it just as leftist Catholics yesterday used it. So in my opinion, uh, there's no reason why evangelicals should not take part in future grassroots politics fighting for social transformation. In particular, the example of MST evangelicals show that collective action relies on self-organization through informal networks of acquaintance and assistance, uh, but also on the born-again ethics of rupture. But this participation, in my opinion, implies a renewal of the left that would be able to overcome a reciprocal feeling of disillusion and disappointment that has obviously ruined the workers' part. A recent good news, I think, is the rise of uh, Guilherme Bolos in Sao Paulo, uh, who is the, the leader of the housing urban movement, the Ruthless Movement do Sem Teto. And uh, evangelicals are very involved in this movement. The geographer Mike Davis once wrote that evangelicals are the largest self-organized movement of urban poor in the world. And despite the harsh competition between churches to control this public, maybe there lies a forgotten promise that God made to his humble people. This was Impact Dialogus. In this episode, I spoke with David Simsler, 
about religion and politics in Pernambuco, Brazil. Impact Dialogos is an original production that is part of the ERC-funded Pact, Populism and Conspiracy Theory project at the University of Tübingen, Germany. It is written, produced and hosted by me, Katerina Hadzikidi. Sound design and mixing by Ignacio Albornoz Farinha. Special thanks to Steffi da Silva, Yul Ko and Michael Buter. Thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>